0: Welcome to the Platform to Perform podcast. The podcast for athletes, coaches, and anyone looking to perform at their highest level. If performance is your goal, we aim to provide you with the Platform to Perform. On episode 12 of the Platform to Perform podcast, I spoke with my first guest from the world of tennis, Daz Drake. Daz has been a professional coach since 2000 and specialises in youth fitness and tennis. As somebody who is been immersed in the world of tennis. He is the proud owner of Athletic Performance Academy which amongst other things provides strength and conditioning coaching to Gosling Tennis Academy and has been doing so since 2005. In that time he has had the pleasure to work with some of the best junior tennis players in the world including four players who have been ranked inside the top 100 for the World Tennis Association. In today's podcast myself and Daz discussed his six-stage model for breaking down the physical qualities required for tennis and what methods are most appropriate to use at various stages in an athlete's development. We spoke about his key values and how he develops coaches to represent his brand in line with these values. We also spoke about the importance of actually going to see coaches rather than just judging them on what you see on social media i really enjoyed this podcast with Daz today the way he has broken down tennis as a sport and how to develop the physical qualities is fantastic and i would highly encourage anyone to follow his work or speak to Daz in person if you get the opportunity to without further ado let's get on with the podcast hello Daz. how are you doing today mate
1: how's it going how are you going i'm uh, i'm good i'm good
0: Excellent. Yeah. Yeah, very well. Very well. Good to good to have you on. The first question I ask all the people who've been kind enough to come on a podcast is why do you do what you do and how has it influenced what you're currently doing?
1: Okay, well, um, I guess I've always enjoyed coaching, but if I'm truly honest, my passion has always been in more coach education. So I think I've got my my thirst for that at university where I got as much of a thrill out of helping my my friends improve in their grades as much as it was about me trying to get the best grade I could. So that that was something that really got me going. And as soon as I had the opportunity to become a professional coach, it, it didn't take me long to realise that what I really wanted to do was, um, you know, have an impact in helping some of the, the less experienced coaches coming through. So that's probably reflected in my business now and my, my role as the, the owner of Athletic Performance Academy, because I guess a big part of what I do as the owner is actually to recruit and train staff that, that basically represent myself ultimately and, and the, my reputation and, and then obviously the values of the company. So, uh, yeah, that, that's really kind of what, what keeps me in, involved now is that coach education.
0: And in terms of the people who work for you, um, reflecting the values that you hold true what what do you value at uh, Athletic Performance Academy and how has your coaching or your experience led you to those values?
1: Yeah well um, I think most organizations certainly the ones that are in the corporate world will have mission statements and values and everything else this was something that I can't take complete credit for because we did have a sports psychologist that worked um, at one of the tennis academies that APA is uh, very much uh, aligned with, and we went through some exercises on how to come up with values. And um, at APA, I, I, I kind of took some of the ones that I liked from the tennis academy and some of the ones that I that resonated with me. But the the idea is is that I'm, and it will probably feed into when we're talking about philosophy, is that I want to coach people first, athletes second, and tennis players third. And I know that sounds a bit cliche, but it, it really is important to me that we are developing people. And one of the ways that you can do that is through coaching through values rather than always thinking about just technical information. So the values that I have at APA, not necessarily in order of importance, but yeah. excellence, yeah. excellence is the first one, respect is the second one, courage is the third one, competitive spirit is the fourth one. And then the last one is enjoyment. So these are the kind of five values, and then really what I try and do when I'm coaching the coaches is to get them to think about what are the behaviours that they're going to embody in themselves that that bring those values to life, and then also how would they expect the athletes that they're working with to to model those behaviours. And I have to say that it does vary from year to year, as you can imagine, depending on the nature of the athletes you're working with. Um, but I would say I spent as much if not more of my time coaching values about how to uh, respect themselves their their competitors and then the training process more than perhaps a lot of the technical information because they've got to be ready to to listen and they've got to be ready to to to, to want to, to do the training that is truly required to be a world class player and that does that takes time to educate them on on how to go about that and yeah, I, I I don't live in this kind of romantic world where I believe that everyone that gets to the top is the most professional professional. Yeah, but you you have to aspire to 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 try and create that culture with all of your coaches and your your athletes, and that excellence one and that respect element. They're the ones that really resonate with me. But then, you know, you need a lot of courage to to keep staying true to the path, even when you're not getting things going your way, and. You know, for me as well, enjoyment is one that I have to really work on myself because what I find enjoyable about um, the process of getting better as an athlete might be different to the next person. So you have to resonate with why people keep turning up at eight o'clock in the morning uh, to to do the training and what, what they find enjoyable. It's really important that I understand what makes them tick and what they enjoy about training. So that's another important one. So, yeah, I do my best to to make sure that we we live these values because otherwise it's just something you write on a bit of paper and you, you, you never talk about it again
0: yeah and i think you always touch on a good point there because it's easy most coaches or maybe just speaking from experience so as a failed athlete myself it's almost easy to naively assume that what motivated you then motivates your athletes uh, which as you said is not always the case in your role of developing coaches how do you go yeah. about Assessing them as a coach, because you've obviously said these values are important. Obviously, technical expertise will come into it somewhere, but do you have a framework for assessing them, or is this sort of an ongoing process? Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I, I guess you could say there's a formal and then there's an informal version of it. So if I was doing a formal mentor mentorship, like you know, stroke internship, if you want to call it that, and someone was actually um, coming in specifically to get feedback on their coaching. I have a more formal approach where there's lots of questions that I ask them about their beliefs about certain things. And obviously, each of the questions relates to one of those values. So if I was talking about excellence, it might be something like, how important is it for you and your athletes to arrive on time? You know, and it's and it's just a conversation starter because what I believe to be excellent and what it should look like might be coming from a completely different place as you. I have never been in the military but I aspired to join as an officer until I was 18 years old and realized that I was not quite going to be able to do that because um, I was colorblind I had poor vision and a few other things but that type of discipline of like being rigorously relentless in being on time and doing everything like clockwork is very easy for me to grasp because that's what I see the world is looking like at the professional level but Having been around elite athletes, I know that there's a lot of athletes that are at the very highest level who would not necessarily see that as what excellence looks for them. They would associate it with what they can do on the tennis court as excellence. You know, being a few minutes late or, you know, not dressing immaculately or something else might not be in their their world. So, you know, you have to find out what's important. And there's certain non-negotiables like I – I will not have any coach swear in front of my cohort of athletes, and I don't care where their background is and whether it's acceptable in another situation. There's certain non-negotiables that I'm just like, look, that's not happening. It's excellence for me is that you speak to them properly and articulately, and if you're going to swear, that's just not acceptable to me. But there'll be other things where if I'm like five minutes late, that means I've arrived on time to other people. Yes. And it's like... But, but I have to I have to pick my battles because if is it, is it negotiable? Well, no. You need to be there on time. You need to be dressed appropriately, and you're going to talk properly. But other things like, you know, what does excellence mean? Do the children have to be silent when you're talking and standing still? Well, in my world, I'm a little bit more militant. But other people, they get really good outcomes because they're very personable and relatable and talkative and take a lot more interest and perhaps have a slightly more friendly approach to the way that they interact with them. Whereas I'm a bit more like at arm's length, but you know what I mean? So you have to, the way I measure it is I have, going back to original question is I have a series of observation checklists and also questions that I can um, get them, my coaches that are new to me to fill in. So I know where they're coming from. So I get to know them because I think you need to invest time in knowing your athletes and knowing your coaches. And so, it's an easy way to do it. Is yeah, I know it's a paper exercise, but you can also ask them, and you can get to know these things by spending time with them. But I do, I do do that formally, and then in and then informally as well. I I, I make the effort to watch their sessions, to and, watch their sessions, and and for them to watch mine, and to and then I just try and kind of think about what are the things that can be chunked up, so that it doesn't matter what background you've come from, whether you're from rugby or whether you're from a combative sport or a or more of a, a creative like artistic sport like you know where the culture is very different what are the things that we can all agree on that that need to happen in order for that session to be successful how can we chunk it up so excellence might be that the children are listening because it means that they respect you so if they're not listening they ultimately don't respect you they need to be learning something because excellence is about coaching and then obviously related to that they need to be having fun so that relates to enjoyment because if they're not listening they're not learning they're not having fun then in my opinion that's an ineffective coaching environment but how do you get the children to listen and to learn and to have fun is more up for grabs because I know that my militant style is not going to um, work for quite a lot of coaches because it's not authentic to them so I don't necessarily expect them to model my specific personality traits and behaviours, but the outcomes need to be there. And that's how we coach through values because that's how we can chunk it up because I think we can agree at the highest level of, I think everyone agrees kids need to be listening. We want them all to be learning. Otherwise we're just babysitting and they need to have fun. Otherwise they don't come back. But, you know, we, we might need to negotiate what that means for different people and different coaches and, that's the interesting part. That's why I always say coach the person first. And I, I really try and um, make sure we do that.
0: And I, I love the way you've almost that. brought that full circle in terms of what you believe, but how that's sort of, there's going to be stuff which you believe fundamentally to be true. There's going to be other stuff where, as you said, you're not going to have coaches model your exact behavior because there's a bit of uh, mm-hmm. wheel room in terms mm-hmm. of understanding yourself as a coach and the athletes in front of you. How do you encourage your the coaches who work for you to? De, how do you encourage them to develop self awareness in terms of what they're like on say a good day, a bad day? I know you've done a lot of, uh, I know you've looked into a lot of Brett Bartholomew's stuff. Um, so if you could yeah. elaborate on how you develop your awareness of yourself as a coach and how that's impacted your coaching.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, my my awareness obviously has. Come about through my own particular uh, inner battles with because as, as a student, one of the things that I, that I found about university was that it played to my strengths but it didn't really prepare me for the workplace because I had a very good ability to critically appraise other people and to be able to write all these fantastic articulate assignments about coaching methodologies but I hadn't really created the ability to form my own opinion and um one of the things that i always struggled with as a as a younger coach was i was a perfectionist and i was um always seeking things um to be done in such a way and i and i was very hard on myself but one of the things that i try and help with the coaches that come into my space now is to get them to understand that like I'm going to give them room to grow and to make mistakes and to learn through through trial. But the main thing I do is I just give them honest feedback from the beginning and I tell them, look, you might not be used to someone talking to you quite directly because it's not the British way. But <laughs> I'm, I'm running a business. You're representing my company and if and I need you to listen and respond to it and I need you to understand it's coming from a safe place. I'm not trying to um unsettle you but I want to make you better and the only way I can do that is if we have a candid frank relationship where you know that you can within reason and with respect give me feedback on how I'm performing as your boss but but that works both ways and I want to give you honest feedback so I watch them and I tell them and I also asked for their opinion first because you know at the end of the day I'm interested to see what their perception is because if they think they've done a great session and in my opinion it wasn't then that's that's interesting and if I think they've done a, a great session and they think that they've done a bad session that's also interesting. So get their opinion and then match pictures and do it quickly because I think people are too worried about upsetting people and worried about what people think and I was certainly as a young coach I was extremely worried about what people thought and I think if you want to try and get somewhere faster you need to just um, make sure that everyone feels safe that they can give candid frank, honest feedback, which goes both ways and it? but it has to be done with respect that 's why one of those barriers is important and then um get on with it because um, i 've got twenty years experience and that that doesn 't mean i 'm necessarily a better coach than them, but it means i 've made more mistakes and i 've probably done something that they 've already uh, done and i 'll try and get them somewhere faster because that's what that's what that's what my job is. So, yeah, just just how many times do you get someone come up to your sessions or and go, right? Would you like some feedback? Yeah,
0: not like, not as often as how, I'd like. Not as often as I'd yeah. like.
1: So imagine that it's your company and you're now everyone's got your name on their T-shirt. Then they kind of like it goes with the territory. I'm going to pay you to do a job, and I'm I picked you because I think you've got some good skills and. um and I'm also going to um, try and help you to be better. And, and as long as you're open for that and willing to, to listen to the feedback, then um, let's get cracking. Brilliant. And
0: in, you said there that in your younger days, you're almost worried to put stuff out there because of what people might think. And whereas now yeah. you, you're regularly writing blogs. Uh, I've seen your episodes yeah. of DazDTV. Uh, how yeah. important is it for you that younger coaches who perhaps aren't as experienced almost... Don't let that stop them from putting stuff out there, which may or may not expose them to feedback that they don't like.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 critical. It's critical. And one of the things that, as I said, that made me have an enormous amount of stress when I first left uni was was not feeling that I could say anything because I was worried about what people would think. And also, I just in university, I had such a long period of time to prepare each. Piece of work, so that it it was as good as I thought it could possibly be, and I genuinely didn't think I could say something or or write something that perhaps was going to be any better in the next couple of days. Where when you actually go into the workplace and everything's moving so fast, you you really can't kind of like you know procrastinate and worry too long about what you've just said because everything's moving so fast, and I think you just got to be a lot more agile, a lot more kind of dynamic and as long as I always say to my coaches as long as you've done the best you can that day and um, you know tomorrow's a new day and and you might do something different and that's fine you know it's just like a moment in time isn't it and I think when you give that person that that belief that it's just a, it's just a moment in time and as long as you did your best that day then you might think something completely different in in another week or another month or another year and I can never get my head around that because um, as a student I just couldn't possibly comprehend that you know that you could think something quite different and it's not to say that you're um if you haven't if sometimes I think if you if you're prepared to change your opinion it might you might be worried that you don't stand for anything yeah but um in my case I've always felt that you can feel very strongly about something and then you know there's nothing wrong with having your um your beliefs challenged and being open-minded to them um, and, and thinking something differently down the line, I've certainly experienced that, and I'm questioning a lot of things that I'm happy to share with you. You know, when we get into the philosophical f- philosophical conversation, because yeah, right now I've I've got some pretty deep uh, coaching methods, and I'm 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 questioning whether I think that that's the best way to help people. You know, improve. So if I can do that 20 years in, then I don't think there's a problem with someone who's questioning what they learn at uni, like a year ago oh absolutely
0: you um, you mentioned or you alluded to the fact about being a bit of a perfectionist and uh, obviously yeah. university moves perhaps a bit slower than the real world of work um apart from being a perfectionist or if you want to dive into that a little bit deeper um what would what do you think your harshest critic might say about you as a coach
1: yeah well um It kind of relates to the perfections, which, by the way, I don't necessarily say is a good thing or a bad thing, but it just wasn't good for me. Yeah. Because it 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 kind of rather than enabling me to strive for excellence, it disabled me because I was never able to get started with anything because uh, there was such a massive fear response that it would never be right, it would never be good enough, and it would never be as good as you know X, Y, and Z coach. So it didn't it didn't enable me. The idea of you know doing your best and striving for excellence is different, so but for me um you know what, what I had to do is just come at it from a completely different point of view and um you know i i mean just going could you just go back to what your original comments I just lost my train of thought there about uh, when you're the, saying, it was about your um what would your harshest critics say about you as a coach yeah yeah yeah, so linked to that perfectionism, I think that. I, I had such a need for structure because it's it also linked to kind of certainty. You know, I think that kind of, they go hand in hand, that perfectionism and need for certainty that I really craved structure in everything and everything needed to be quite black and white. And it had to be like, so I guess my, one of the things that I did in my my coaching throughout my coaching is I've always sought to have quite rigid structures and, I suppose what that in, in, inevitably makes you do is become quite a reductionist coach that looks to uh, you know, take everything down to its smallest denominator so that you look at athleticism rather than as a complete whole. You look at it through a number of component parts, which I'm not saying is necessarily a flaw because it helps you to make sense of the world, but yeah. I think you then have to be able to understand that if you coach it in such a reductionist, closed um, stale way that potentially you might go down the wrong path. So I certainly felt that it it's it was important to me and it still is important to me to to create structure within my thought processes. But when I originally did it it came from a place of needing perfectionism and certainty and wanting to be able to know that this is the way the world and the way the way athleticism is built. Whereas now I do it just to help me explain things in a more simple way for new coaches but I do always have this massive caveat that please when I put these structures in front of you like and I'll I'll talk about the philosophy in a second I don't want you to think that that necessarily means that you're going to have to compartmentalize athleticism and break it down into these separate pieces because in reality you know you can't have one of those things without something else you can't have strength without coordination you can't have speed without balance you know they're just yeah they're just it's just a way for us to delineate the world so that we can make better sense of it and i still like to simplify the world into these boxes but i know i'm doing it now just to help say hey this is apa and when we talk about speed what i mean is this when i talk about strength what i mean is this now you might have been given some other information where your perception of this is different, but Hey, when we're having a conversation around the table and I'm talking about speed, it includes these three or four or five main things. And, you know, so that that's just kind of where, where I got, but yeah, as a, as a critic, you'd probably say that I was quite rigid in my, in my structure. And and over the years now I've become more open to coaches being a little bit more, uh, you know, not you know i wouldn't say rigid but just letting them express their ideas a little bit more creatively
0: yeah we and i think you touched on a good point there because we spoke off air about certain people on social media who will be either this way or that way and you saying how you fall somewhere in the middle and ironically you even though you like things structured in terms of your thought processes on different parts of strength conditioning it's very much you know uh fluid should we say so what You've mentioned your philosophy a few times. What is your philosophy when it comes to training athletes, and does that change at all when you're dealing with, say, a a really young athlete?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, at the kind of uh, the top level, I, I, I spoke to the idea, which I'm sure you know other people have mentioned this about the the need to coach the the person and then the athlete and then and then the tennis player, which is. For me, is important because that essentially, I think a lot of coaches will say that you've got to coach the mental, the physical, the tactical, and the technical. So that's really my way of of addressing the fact that I want to to coach the mental and then the physical and then the technical. So, but I just happen to like the word um, coach the person, coach the athlete, coach the player. That works for me within my world. And then, obviously, once once you go a little bit deeper and you start looking at the actual physical domain of of the athlete. So if we kind of focus on the athlete, then you know, I, I think that any kind of sound philosophy needs to start with a, with a needs analysis that's going to inform your, your strategy. So I think you know, everyone that's went to university has been told that they need to do a needs analysis which looks at the physiological, the biomechanical, and then perhaps like some kind of uh, psychological and then an injury uh, prevalence piece I think that's that's a given, but for me, my philosophy is, you know, I'm trying to understand ultimately what are the power production demands of the specific movements of that sport, because ultimately I believe that when you really like get down to it, you're trying to help the athlete produce the most amount of power in the the actions that are relevant to their sport. So that that's kind of where my start point is but then in terms of my strategy i'm i'm really more of a general specialist or specialist generalist whatever you want to call that so i i believe that as far as it relates to tennis it it would be quite easy to start thinking very specifically about what tennis needs and ultimately for tennis i would say you need power endurance right so that might be where i'm i'm trying to go but as far as my my philosophy about building the athlete from someone who's very young, who who may or may not be going into tennis. Um, I use the five S's, which Mel Sift was uh, famous for talking about in, and super training, right? So I, I talk about uh, suppleness, skill, strength, speed, and stamina. And those are my five pillars of athleticism. And so my philosophy is, is, uh, a generalist approach to developing a complete athlete who has got no physical limitations, who in in theory would be capable of applying their body to any sport. And, and, and obviously over the course of a long-term athlete development plan, I've looked at each of those five physical factors and I've developed a, a six stage pathway from, from kind of your, youngest child up to the professional ranks and obviously as they get older and the tennis narrative becomes more and more important I will then start to put more focus on which of those five S's are going to be most important most critical for tennis but I guess the other thing I would say which is it always guides my philosophy is is what does the athlete need first and then the needs of the sport second because I think we do get guilty of trying to like always, put the sport first, and I think you know if if you kind of have if, have that concept of what does the athlete need, that does that that's really important as well. So I know I've kind of waffled on a little bit. No, there, that's essentially, It's the five S's with six stages of development, and I can talk about some of the the aspects, but um, I'm sure you've got lots of other people that have given uh, a good overview of like long term athlete development. But I guess. For me, the, the key things is, um, if you heard me mention earlier about the five S's, I probably would say movement efficiency is the most important like foundation. So in those earlier stages, you will find the suppleness and the skill and then, then the strength foundation will be more important. When you get to the kind of middle point of those six stages, so maybe like stages three to five where you're going just pre and then puberty and then post-puberty, it's going to be more about that that strength piece, and then obviously once we get to the last stage, that's where I really put the, the stamina uh, under the under the spotlight. So, it's, you know, if if we're going to simplify things just to help people understand it, that's how I'd go: more suppleness and skill, and then coming into strength and speed, and then finally on top of that, we're going to put the stamina. So that's kind of how I see building the complete athlete, and certainly for tennis. With, with what I regard as going back to that point about power, that power endurance, that, that that's how I see tennis as well, is get the get the power first and then, and then that last piece, stage six, is where we really build the, the endurance of that power.
0: One thing I want you to talk about a little bit more is a lot of, I'm sure you've probably come across a lot of parents who will, for example, say, right, tennis might be a sport that could last, however long it lasts because there's no set time yeah. frame. So therefore I need to get my kid really, really fit. And they almost put that stamina, which you say is almost the last thing you focus on, or the power endurance, the last thing. Yeah. But then they yeah. put it at the forefront. What are some of the negatives or the dangers of doing that with, say, a young
1: athlete? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the thing I say, I, I would stress, which this doesn't land for a lot of people sometimes. And it's, it's maybe I, I need to... Figure out a better way to explain it, but these are just kind of the focus points. So you're always working on all of the components all of the time, right? So if you said to me, right, what do you mean by stamina? I'm talking about a very specific form of uh, anaerobic energy provision for tennis, so power endurance. I want them to be able to produce explosive movements repeatedly, which is a very high end quality. Which is why I sometimes get a bit nervous of things like CrossFit with the, the you know the un Un- kind of accustomed recreational athlete because some of the things in there are extremely powerful movements done extremely repetitively, and I'm a bit like nervous. But that's probably another discussion, right? Yeah. So let's, let's just say that that's the pinnacle of of endurance. But there's other types of endurance. There's aerobic endurance, which could be something as simple as some steady steady cardiac output work to get your heart rate up to between 130 and 150 beats per minute for 20 minutes, and that could just be a bike ride right so if someone says like well what does endurance look like for your elite level athlete well i just explained is power endurance it's like it's repeated maximal effort leaping around the core right where you you're, you're overcoming multiple times your body weight and then having to attenuate even higher forces in order to land against that momentum that you've created but if we're just talking about young children then it looks different and and you're still working on endurance, but at stage one, it's going to be more play, like games with evasion games, and that's going to get your heart rate beaten, but it's going to be a little bit more play in small areas. Then as you get to maybe the middle stage, it's going to be your traditional aerobic intervals, and then you're going to get your eventually you're going to get into your anaerobic intervals, and eventually you're going to be doing it with like jumping, right? So with kids, I, I always say to them, it's like it's just what how you present it and and what i try to do with each of those six stages is give a interpretation of what that method will look like for, at that stage and for for a younger child endurance is going to look different you know stamina if i want to use that s sorry stamina it's going to look different for a child so i uh, you know I'll, I'll do things that are going to tax the more the aerobic system but they're still going to do things that might tax the anaerobic system because they play tennis, right? (laughs) So, so, but that might be the main stimulus for them initially is the sport because they're already getting a good anaerobic, like intermittent type repeat sprint. So I might want to be putting more emphasis onto some other qualities that will, that will augment that such as strength. You know? So it's, it's just, it's just how you, how you determine what, what's what you're focusing on at any given point in time and my philosophy is a holistic approach where all of those five s's will be will be in the the narrative from day one all the time forever and ever and ever but it's just what does it look like for a child and what's the percentage of the time that you know you're you're working on so how do you how do you slice the pie
0: yeah so yeah. with the, just diving into your model a little bit more, so presumably obviously stage six is your professional tennis player and stage one might be presumably somebody takes a pre, uh, prepub- prepubescent child to you, yeah. so really yeah. young. Yeah. Could you just go through these sort of six stages in a little bit more detail or what ages you're looking at yeah. with each stage?
1: Yeah, Yeah. So, so each of those five S's will have a framework where essentially I've, I've selected... The method that I think is most compatible and is the is the method that I would use the most. So, I mean, I can just give you like a, an example of a particular subcomponent. Let's let's say um, we're doing speed, right? So, within within speed, I will classify sub- four subcomponents. They all have to finish with the word speed because it's just the like how it needs to be. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, straight ahead speed would be like your linear speed. First step speed would be like you speed off the mark. You know, some people call that something different, but I call it first step speed. Um, Multi directional speed would be your classic agility. And then I've got something reserved that's very synonymous with tennis, what I call sport specific speed. And in tennis, we would call that footwork. Yeah. Right. So I've got these four categories. And then within those categories, I will have uh, now my six stages. So if I was looking at speed, stage one is typically more isolated movements. So you're learning the look, right? So if I was talking about straight speed and I'm looking at acceleration, I might have something like a walk, walk march. And then basic two, I'm going to challenge that uh, skill a little bit further and I'm going to make it a bit more dynamic. So now, rather than them just being stationary against the wall, They're going to be doing maybe like a falling start. So they're going to be moving now over a distance of several meters. Basic three, I want to challenge the complexity uh, even further by having more decision-making. So probably not such a good example for straight head speed because there isn't much decision-making once the gun's gone off. But um, the principle of there being a, a decision or some kind of randomness to the the execution of the task so even in straight head speed as i've used this analogy it could be that they are um side shuffling and then you know on a cue of the of the coach or of the opponent or of a the ball there is a you know 20 yard sprint to um to uh, you know a defined area of the field so that kind of thing and then once i once i get to base to the next three levels, I call it advanced one, two, and three. And advanced one is where I mainly use intensification, so more load. So straight head speed, it might be a uh, a heavy sled. Advanced two, I want to put more emphasis on the velocity rather than the force. So that heavy sled might now become a light sled. And then um, advanced three is that, that endurance aspect, so speed endurance. So now you might be doing... Um, if it's, a, if it's acceleration, it would be lots of volume of that. So there'd be lots of, uh, you know, higher number of meters. And if it was a top speed, then it would be just, you know, long longer sprints. So that would be an example of just how I move things along. But the thing that I would want to stress from the beginning is that it's not like a child never gets to do a long sprint until they've absolutely nailed the wall march because... Yes. You'd have very bored kids and very bored coaches. So it's like a, it's, a it's, it's something that I want the coaches to be aware of so that they know what is the progression. Because as part of my philosophy, at the end of the day, I just want to gradually and progressively increase this training stimulus, right? That's all I want to do. Because I genuinely believe that if you've got an athlete and you can increase their exposure to a stimulus that is going to make them adapt, eventually, of course, you need that training stimulus to be more specific to the demands of their sport, right? But essentially, that's how I go about things with that minimal effective dose. What is the next level of stress that they need to improve? And so with a child, it might be that the coordination piece is the thing that gets them to that next level is learning how to coordinate their their limbs but for someone who's already got the basic motor skill um, and they might be a child by the way you know a young child that knows how to run then I don't have a problem with them having a light resistance even though that's an advanced method because you just make it a, a light band rather than a heavy sled yeah and you know, so you just have to take these progressions with a pinch of salt, but essentially, that's how I see things and I just want the coaches to have an awareness of what something looks like that's got less stimuli and less stress, and something at the other end that's got more, and then you have to use your common sense to to know how much of each of those things you want to give and obviously, in an ideal world a a young stage one athlete is going to have more focus on. Uh, movement efficiency and technical mastery and learn the basics and you'd expect that an elite level athlete that's got more training history would um, need more intensification and more endurance of those qualities because they're more robust so yeah
0: that yeah. makes perfect sense I think I've certainly seen a lot of um strength conditioning uh pyramids and saying you've got to build this quality then this one and then this one on top but as you said it's I, I don't know where I'm stealing the analogy from, but almost like a Tetris block in, or a jigsaw puzzle, in the sense of you're putting this piece around this piece, but it's not that this piece is more important. It's just how they complement yeah. each yeah. other. How do you? Yeah, it wasn't, yeah, yeah. Oh, no! All I was gonna say is uh, obviously uh, you've spoken through a, or given uh, detail like about your model to speed. How do you incorporate? deceleration is that under your change of direction model or is this something you're again as you said working alongside speed
1: yeah so i mean this is the interesting thing which is is to answer your question yeah the deceleration aspect would be a part of the initial stage of multi-directional speed so i think that you need to be working both sides of the coin from the beginning i think you need to be working the gas and you need to be working the brakes so in a car with a young child i want them to be learning how to accelerate so that's the gas but obviously i'm acutely aware that you need to, to teach the brakes so these things will be happening simultaneously if you were to push me and say there's one gun before the other most people would say you need to do the brakes first because you wouldn't want to you know drive a ferrari out of the uh, the showroom with no brakes right but actually if I, if I'm truly honest, you know, I I do put quite a lot of emphasis in the beginning on first step speed and um, straight ahead speed because I do think that a lot of children haven't actually fully developed that either. So I mean, they get pretty much equal attention, I would say, in my early in my early uh, phases. It's not like, you know, they just run and stop for hours and hours and hours, and then they earned <laughs> the right to then start sprinting around because you're playing invasion games with them from day one. So. They, they go in hell for leather from the beginning. You know? it's, just, it's just what they need. And of course, putting the brakes on is something that they learn as part of that multi-directional uh, training system from the beginning. Yeah.
0: And you mentioned in your description of how you uh, build speed and how that molds together uh, about attacking things from the velocity end uh, and yeah. maybe using either heavier sleds or lighter sleds. You recently did a blog article for uh, Rob Pacey's podcast. So, just want to chat a little bit about uh, force velocity profiling. So, uh, what is force velocity profiling for those of you people who have not heard of it, and why might a coach want to use it?
1: Yeah. So, from a from a training efficiency standpoint, as as you as I kind of said at the beginning, like athleticism, ultimately, most sports scientists and even kind of applied practitioners, coaches, I think, are agreed that measuring and monitoring expression of force in short or relevant periods of time to sport is important so essentially what we're interested in is power because that's the expression of force in the in the in the time frames that are relevant sport right so if we all agree that power is an interesting thing to measure logic tells us is that if we can more accurately define how much force some athlete is capable of producing at various different velocities it's going to be hopefully more uh, it's going to be easier to optimally uh, design their training because you're going to be able to determine how much force somebody is able to produce at different amounts of velocity. And so if you know the velocities that are ultimately um, most important to your sport, so in tennis, it's going to be different to rugby, it's going to be different to football, you can determine whether they're producing enough force at the velocities that the sport requires. And if you find that they are perhaps not producing enough force, uh, which is quite common, or equally, they can produce a large amount of force slowly, but they're not able to produce that same amount of force at the speeds required for sport, then maybe they need to be working a bit more on their velocity. It just enables you to better pinpoint where you might be able to make the most effective use of their training time. And and it's really kind of speaks to that, uh, you know, individualization piece which we all say we do and I think we all to a great or lesser extent actually do that and um, one thing I would say is that um, that type of profiling is something that I don't necessarily do with my younger or less experienced athletes because every day that they go in the gym they're changing their parameters to some degree so I'm more looking at that where I have an athlete who says that they've been training for several years and maybe I don't know them or maybe I think I know them and I just want to test my own assumptions. And then I want to know whether they produce how much force uh, and and at certain times that are relevant to sport, um, what what happens there. So I just like to test my own uh, opinions and, and assumptions about athletes. and I don't do it with a lot of the younger ones because, as I said, every time they go in the gym, they essentially feel like they're getting either more coordinated and or stronger. So it's like, it's something that I don't monitor as much. But with, with athletes that have been training for a while, it's something I like to do. And um, I'm still trying to get my head around uh, J.B. Marin's research because um, I've been using his squat jump protocol as well. Uh, so it's only obviously looking at the jump performance, but it, it gives you some kind of indication of how they produce force and um and, and and the research has been really helpful to create those force velocity. so yeah we can talk about that but again it's something that I'm, I'm trying to get my head around as well
0: and on the subject of jb marine stuff you said uh yeah. on the podcast and off the podcast uh you're a specialist generous so yeah. if you could spend uh if you could spend a block of time with yeah. one coach observing them and their yeah. athletes um yeah. again this doesn't have to be one coach forever yeah. just maybe something that you're Interested in of late who would you choose to spend time with and why?
1: Yeah, well, I have spent time with both of these coaches so I'm going to tell you why because I I personally wanted to to be challenged a little bit the first person that was Continues to be influential on me, but Ian Jeffries because he wrote a book called game speed and I'd actually been picking his brains for quite a few years before that book came out but he had always, in my opinion, had created that nice sweet spot between the structure that I was looking for, but also when he saw him coach, it was very like clear that there was a lot of chaos with whatever group he was working with. He It wasn't like um, what I expected to see. I, I'd read the book, I'd seen the, the structure, but he really was the person that made me see how you could work within the structure and and surf that that kind of curve if you want to use the the language where you you could be doing something that was quite static but you could be doing something very dynamic and it would happen in the same session and even with like inexperienced athletes because yeah i just felt he did that very well and every time i think about what a good speed session should look like with a, a large group of mixed ability people I always think about the sessions that I used to watch him when I'd go and observe a few of his sessions at his university. So um, he was one person that I'd say go and check out because A, he's a fantastic um, ex-professional athlete. He's got a ton of energy um, and he just, I think he creates the kind of session that I would want my coaches to be creating every day of the week. So yeah, yeah. he's a good person.
0: Yeah, I must say, having heard Ian Jeffrey speak at the UKCA a couple of years ago and watched one of his talks at the NSCA, as you said, the energy yeah. he brings is brilliant and it challenges a lot of traditional, shall we say, speed and change of direction programs. But it, it puts it nicely in the sense if it's not, you've got to learn it in a static environment, then you've got yeah. to integrate it into the sport and you can't do one till you've done the other. Yeah. Um, but as you said, the yeah. right balance of work uh, going on. Uh, you yeah. recently spent some time with uh, a strength and conditioning coach, St- Stefan Jones, who works predominantly yeah. in cricket. Uh, yeah. I've seen stuff, uh, we chatted off air about the stuff we'd seen on social media. So my first question is, uh, why is it important not to, for example, judge what, solely what you see on social media when it comes to forming an opinion of a training methodology? And the second part of the question is, we'll just chat about what you learned from spending time with him or what made you want to go and spend time with him
1: yeah okay well i mean i i kind of pride myself and i well i i say pride myself but i think it's important that we always respect that context is king right so um i could never really say for sure what the rationale is for anything i see on social media unless i've actually asked the person what the context is because Outwardly, it might look like it just doesn't fit or doesn't make sense, or you might think, "Oh that's just a really stupid exercise, but there might be a perfectly rational reason why they 're doing it, um, and even if their philosophy perhaps outwardly looks like they're coming at it from a completely <coughs> different place from you, if they can justify their philosophy and ultimately they 're going to get results with it then then who am I to judge uh, you know, what the rationale is. So I do think context is key. You've got to know the, the background. I try not to, to make too many, uh, like quick assumptions about why someone's chosen the exercise. And if I don't have that information, so that's, that's the, I think that's the, the first thing is you got, you just got to be respectful. Going back to my values of that people are putting something out there. You don't know what their rationale is for sharing it. You know, everyone's got their own reasons for sharing stuff, but, um, I'm certainly not going to uh reach out to someone and criticize it without at least uh understanding the rationale. So, you know, every everyone does that to some greater greater or lesser extent. It's just not my thing. I just I just couldn't do it. I couldn't just like, you know, throw someone under a bus and criticize them when I haven't even taken the time to to know what the rationale is and it might be a stupid exercise. You know, it could actually be like a stupid exercise, but ultimately you know, I don't need to follow that person and if, I if I think that, do I?
0: So. And on the subject of that, obviously, so for context, I first came across Stefan's work uh, on Fast Bowlers uh, on Twitter. Um, in terms of developing uh, speed that's going to be seen on court, what are some of the yeah. mistakes that you see either with... Uh, Tennis coaches or SNC coaches trying to get on court when it comes to developing speed that will actually be seen in the context of the game.
1: Yeah, well, I'll try and kind of segue that to Stefan Jones if you want because I didn't okay, actually yep. answer. No, that. we didn't. But but the thing that got me interested in what he was talking about and the reason why I went to visit him, but also to answer your question about how that relates to tennis, is he always struck me as someone that was going to measure his. Impact and his interventions by KPIs, so what I call like key performance indicators that were most closely associated with the sport itself. So when when I went to visit him and I was like, "How will you truly know if your program is working?" He'll go, "Because they bowl faster, Daz." I'm like, "Okay, that even all of the things that I've tried to follow on your social media that confuse the hell out of me at times, that." Is just a very rational thing to judge your performance, your program by. And he goes, "That's all I, all I need to know is." And then, the, and then the science is, what does, what are the performance rate limiting factors that might cause someone not to be able to express their bowling speed, and therefore, that's the interesting question that that he blew my mind with because where he comes from is a completely different place where I was coming from. It was fascinating, but. Um, You know, we can talk about that a little bit in a second. But as it relates to tennis, it's the same kind of thing. It's like, you know, you've got two main jobs as a strength and conditioning coach. You're trying to assist in maximizing performance on the sports field. And as I said, part of my philosophy is trying to determine those methods that are going to ultimately help to produce power in the tasks that you need in your sport. The question is, is to what degree do you get involved in a very specific application of that on the court? And and where I stand is it, it does depend on your own limits of your capability. I've been in tennis for 15 years and been indoctrinated in the sport and and have been surrounded by fantastic tennis coaches. I will never tell a tennis player how to hit a tennis ball. But what I will do is I'll be able to to storytell in such a way that they're clearly seeing that what we're trying to do is improve the final skill of hitting a tennis ball. But I'm never going to talk to them about grips or racket paths or that kind of stuff. But I'm, I might get on the court and talk to them about their body position and their, um, their stance and their footwork because at the end of the day, um, my observational checklist starts on the tennis court if i'm ultimately going to have to judge whether my program is making them better on the tennis court well then the observation has got to start on the tennis court not in the gym it's got to start there and so what i will do is i'll have an observation checklist where i want to see how they are moving on the court because i i just think it's so important but whether or not i actually get on the court and how often is going to be based on my own expertise and the expertise of the tennis coaches and our availability of resources, because you know, not many people have the the luxury of being able to, you know, have a, a tennis coach and a physical trainer spend an hour on a court at the same time, because in most cases, who's who's paying for that, you know, unless <laughs> unless you're unless you're employed by a governing body and you both work for the Lawn Tennis Association, it's not necessarily always feasible, but that that for me is is ultimately where where the observation should start because we can't get too romantic about the fact that everything that we do in the gym is going to improve performance because it might be that it's just there to reduce the the injury risk and it might be that one of the things that we're doing is to help them to manage the training stress of the the loads that they're putting on their body but if you are trying to improve performance and that's your your goal then yeah you should certainly look start with the end in mind and Stefan bringing it back full circle was very comfortable starting with the end in mind. And he would, he would be talking about bowling speed, and he'd be talking about arm speed, and he'd be talking about run up distance and run up speed, and things that were all to do with the actual action of bowling. And, and he was less concerned with how strong they were on two legs doing a typical uh, isotonic back squat, you know, with eccentric isometric content because he's just like that doesn't determine whether you're going to bowl fast so you know there's loads of stuff in there but for yeah for me with the footwork um it's it's not so much it's not so difficult because most snc coaches are very uncomfortable with footwork and tennis so most coaches are more are more happy not to get on the court but um the only the only the only thing i would say if, if you do come across someone who clearly has a tennis background and they're wanting to kind of wear two hats, is just be cautious about how much you try and coach footwork consciously because um, it's you can get paralysis by overanalysis. And I've seen a lot of S and C coaches that are well intended, and including myself in my early career, where I try to talk them into how they move around the tennis court. And you just can't do it once you actually put the tennis ball in play. It just doesn't transfer. So you have to kind of recognise that what you're doing is, um, is only going to go so far. And then at some point, the tennis coach is going to have to be the person that helps to, you know, to get that transfer.
0: And in terms of, uh, I think I mentioned uh, Paul Colbeck's work in uh, contextual sprinting within football. So he talks about how, and it's kind of similar to Ian Jeffries in uh, in the sense of, obviously, you've got the physical qualities, but you need to be able to perceive what's happening in front of you in order to make an action. Um, Do you see, or how do you see, that something like that might be able to be related to tennis in terms of having the perceptual skills to understand where the ball's going to bounce and uh, reading the opponent's body language?
1: Well, well that's everything. As everything in tennis, it's like you know, everything that you that makes a tennis player great at that sport is ultimately come down to the fact that they can consistently impact the ball at a a certain you know point in time. And there are my observation checklist goes in such a way that I look at it mental, physical, tactical, technical, because. I think the danger as, as sports coaches is that they will assume that every error is technical, right? But I don't want to sound like I'm, um, you know, like, uh, what's the word? I, I guess it feels like I'm perhaps saying one thing and then, and then contradicting myself in the same breath. But at, yes, technique is everything, but there might be technical errors, but what caused them? And and invariably it's not the fact that they don't know how to hit the ball, but they've made a technical error. Why? And so my checklist is usually goes mental, physical, tactical, then technical, because invariably one of the key things that people forget to observe is were they actually trying their hardest? (laughs) Right? So you know when we talk about person, athlete, player, person, were they focused and giving 100% effort because if they're not, I'm not even going to waste my time evaluating your performance because a lot of the coaches will say, I think there might be something here. They're not moving well. They're not doing this. Most of the coaches that I work with because they're very experienced will not be so naive to miss out the elephant in the room, which is they just don't care. They don't, they're just, they're not trying. Right. But I think that's a good bit of advice for some coaches that are so concerned on the technical aspect. You go, Hey, did you actually realize that they did not care what what one bit about that drill? It just, they were not engaged in that whatsoever. So why are you even trying to, you know, like think about what was the cause of the error? They just didn't try it. If If they're focused and they're engaged and they're giving hundred percent, then I can look at the physical qualities on the court and I can go, right. Did they have an athletic base? Did they have a good, Um, impulse so off the ground did they use law of opposing forces so they were reacting with the ground did they take large explosive first few steps when they when they um, aligned with the ball did they beat the bounce so did they get there early rather than arriving just on time or late did they impact the ball above their waist and in front of their body so um, they've got good you know uh, spatial awareness and hand-eye coordination all this kind of stuff. And then did they recover before their opponent hits the ball? And, all the, you know, you can start going into all these physical qualities. And then related to that, time and space is so important in tennis. So the tactical aspect is, did they know where to move to? Has anyone actually told them where to move into in relation to the baseline? Because you can appear slow on a tennis court, not only if you, you don't know um, how to move with you know, proper efficiency, but you don't know where to move to. Maybe you you don't recover to the right point, so you you run too far or you run to the wrong spot, so you appear to be slow, but you've just recovered to a place that's too far away and then, after all those things are in place, then you can start talking about the technique like how did they how did they use the kinetic chain, the technique of weight transfer uh you know kinetic chain energy transfer from the ground to the. Ground. The technique of, um, you know, the actual shot itself, which is where the the sports coach comes in. So there's so much stuff there and it's, it's incredible. And if you think about all of those things and then you go to the gym and you can determine whether they're actually strong or powerful and fit and fast, but so much context on the tennis court that you need to really do a comprehensive assessment that, um, yeah, it's, that's why I love the game. That's why I've been in it for 15 years because it's not, a, it's not an exact science and um, it's, it's, it's complex. But your job is to try and try and simplify it. That's why I love it. And I think
0: going back to your... Going back to right at the start of the podcast where you were talking about specifically defining terms and saying when I speak about this in my world, it means this. Mm. I think that's so important because you've, you've just given an example of the athlete moving well around the court. And one thing, strength and conditioning coaches, and again, I'm guilty of this, uh, get caught up in is we use what perhaps could be generic phrases and when I say moving well as a strength and conditioning coach I might mean can they lunge, squat, hinge, push, pull. You say they're moving well on the court that might be as you said do they recover well do they move into the space they're meant to. Um, on that subject and uh, going back to the philosophy when working with youth athletes uh, we had a chat off air about David Epstein's new book and talking about the impact of early specialization. Um, so you have some interesting thoughts about actually uh, talented athletes not needing as much exposure to sport practice. Do you want to dive into a little bit of that now?
1: Yeah. So I'm I'm not afraid of using the term talent. I know that you have to be careful about how you 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 use that word, especially in front of children that you might be labeling, because labels are so critical. And you know when we talk about developing people you've got to give everyone empowerment labels but at the same time talent is one of those taboo words where a lot of people think that once they're labeled as talented they stop trying all of a sudden you know because they're, they're they've got this kind of divine right to be an elite athlete I'm certainly not saying that but I just want people to be kind of aware of the fact that there is such a thing that in my opinion there are people who appear to uh Pick up the, the particular motor skills of a sport quicker than other people and i'm I'm happy to call those people talented I, I describe it a bit like download speed you know if if you're if you're kind of not so talented you might have that old kind of uh, dial up internet that takes you five minutes for it to come through and 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 the talented person maybe they're running at 5 g so they you know they they only need to like see it like once and they can like they can basically imitate that straight away. And you're like, that is so unfair. How can you just like execute that tennis serve and you've like seen it once? I mean, I know I'm giving you a really like over a simplification. It's not that simple, but that's how I look at it is that there are people that just take less time to acquire the skills. And I genuinely believe that everyone is capable of getting to a certain level of performance that, that is maybe not expert level, but they'll can they they'll be able to acquire the skill. What I'm saying is, I don't think that some children are capable of acquiring the skills fast enough to get on the bus. Yeah. I just think that, you know, there's a finite, um, finite amount of time by which someone has to have achieved expert level. And you can say, well, is it does? Is there not a place for someone to, like be a bit of a slow burner and, you know, still achieve the highest level in the tennis game, having played it for one hour a week and just done it little and often. And I'm just like, well, you show me who that player is, you know, and how many are of them that, that are genuinely not, what I'm going to say, specialised in a sport like tennis? Because I think that, you know, people do need to invest a certain amount of time. And all I'm saying is that talented people, in my opinion, maybe get away with spending a little bit less time than perhaps culturally we think in tennis you need to be in order to get to an expert level I mean you know motor skill learning has said that you need like 10,000 reps to get the basics of of a skill like a tennis serve maybe you need 100,000 reps to become excellent at it and maybe you need you know like 150,000 to become legitimate expert right that's a lot of reps but um, i'm just i just think that some people who are more talented maybe don't need as much repetition to get the skill and that 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 for me is just something i've seen and experienced and um, no doubt everyone can get maybe better by doing more but i think the more capable you are the less you need to to get to the same level
0: makes a lot of sense and in terms of early early specialization it is a little bit of a buzzword in the strength and conditioning community how do you define early specialisation and why do you think that tennis is perhaps more of an early specialisation sport than I don't know rugby or football or whatever sport you want to use as your example
1: yeah well I'll I'll differentiate between the words specific and specialised training because I believe that there is no problem whatsoever in turning up to a football academy or a tennis academy or a rugby academy and expecting to play tennis football or rugby that's specific training for that sport i mean if i went to a tennis academy and i was playing football for the whole hour every week there'd be something wrong right but that specific training specialized training is where you only play that sport full stop so what i would i I would encourage is that there is no problem with someone training specifically on a Tuesday when that's the night that they go to the tennis academy and then to go and be doing things that are more specific like playing football on the Thursday I know that in reality this doesn't work quite like this but that's what specific training is specialized training is where you only go to the tennis academy five days a week and you don't play other sports so the question is is do I think that specialized training is a problem I think you know, globally speaking, we all know that if you overuse the muscles repeatedly, so you get this kind of pattern overload, you're more likely to have injury and you're more likely to have psychological burnout. So there are some problems with doing something repetitively in a sort of specialized manner. The question is, is, is that the nature of the beast that do you still need to do that in order to become elite? Again, I would, I would make the case that the more talented you are, the more likely it is that you could have a more diverse, enriched form of multi-sports type work for a longer period of time before you need to specialize. And I would also go further that if it's a sport like tennis, where I perceive it to be a very highly coordinated based sport, I think you're going to need more reps to master those techniques than, say, throwing a rugby ball and smacking someone with a tackle which all the rugby people are going to be like you've really just just disrespected the sport and i know that tackling is an extremely dangerous thing and you have to obviously master the art of tackling but relatively speaking you're using a lot of gross global muscles um whereas you're using a lot of fine motor skills for tennis and i think yeah it's unquestionable that it's a highly highly demanding complex motor task and I think you need to be practicing it earlier to get better at it, and um, you know, particularly in the female game, young women are are getting to the to the top level, and um, they might not be winning every tournament, but they're getting to the top level before they're adults, you know, like sixteen, seventeen, eighteen years old. So, um, yeah, I, and 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 I guess probably one other thing I'd say is. It's early to specialize tennis, but it's late to realize. So you've got to start early, but you don't start winning at the top level until you are like in your mid 20s, right? There's not many people in the top 100, especially in the men's game, that are um, under 25, right? Yeah. But how many of them started playing when they were like five? A lot. A lot. So it's yeah. early to specialize, but late to realize. So it's it's one of those sports where you've got to invest early and for a long period of time. So that's why a lot of people can't do it because it costs a lot of money to do that.
0: Yeah. And I think as we were saying earlier in the podcast, people's opinions shift one way. And it's almost like in strength and conditioning, you hear the word early specialization. And immediately it's a negative thing rather than, as you said, looking at it in the context of uh, everything else and saying, actually. Yes, we're specializing early. Yes, we're still going to develop these other physical qualities. But over time, it's that uh, chunk of time that's going to lead to success later down the line. Like For me, I've always looked at it, uh, whether or not you subscribe to the 10,000 hour rule. I always think if you start at the age of five, it's much easier to get those 10,000 hours in sooner than, for example, if you start at 20. And then by the time you've done 10,000 hours, I don't know, you're 45 or the game has very much passed you by. just starting to wrap up now uh if you were to recommend one resource whether it's uh, a podcast or uh, a blog or uh, maybe something online what snc resource would you recommend whether it's a person to follow an actual resource an app whatever you've found useful
1: yeah well i mean if 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 i can just pull out a few people um i mean obviously obviously um in terms of podcast resources, you know that um, I I'm a big fan of Pacey Performance Podcasts, and I know you've listened to that as well. So I do enjoy that. Get a lot of diverse speakers on that. Um, in terms of like thought provokers, people that make me really question things. Uh, obviously, we mentioned Stefan Jones, so he'd be worth a follow on on um, Instagram for sure, because he'll he'll get your brain working. And then in terms of like a a a resource, a textbook that will, I wouldn't say it's a light read by any any stretch of the imagination, but the um, the book by Vergasensky I really like the, um, you know, the special strength training for coaches manual, which is definitely not a light read and it's, it's probably more on the, the, the advanced level, but for just getting you to think about how to build the progressive training stimuli, you know, with a foundation of movement efficiency and inter and intramuscular coordination, then strength and then power and then power endurance. A lot of my inspiration for the the APA training method was taken from, uh, you know, great sports scientists like Virgo And um, I'd certainly, I'd certainly have a look at that one. If you can, if you can, uh, you know, give it some time. And then probably last one, um, Franz Bosch, which we didn't mention today but the strength training uh, and coordination and integrated approach I mean that that one again if you if you want to really like um, listen to some thought leaders and people that are going to challenge the the norm then that's another great book but again it's not a light read you're probably going to need to read it several times but those books and those people and those podcasts are definitely um, people and places that I, I revisit regularly to to keep challenging uh, my, my thoughts and you
0: you mentioned obviously how these books have influenced the apa framework where can people go to either get in touch with you personally or find out more about the services that yourself and apa
1: provide yeah so i am I'm, I'm most active probably on instagram so you my my tag there is at apa coach das and as far as the website there's a website um, www.athleticperformanceacademy.co.uk and again I'm, I'm happy for people to email me as well so you can email me at Daz at apacoaching.co.uk
0: excellent and uh, last question put you on the spot a little bit now um, yeah. if listeners so whether it's uh, tennis coaches parents or other SC coaches if they were to take one thing away from uh, this podcast what would you like that to be? Huh. And I don't know. We've spoken about a lot, so you can uh, you can have a couple of yeah, minutes yeah. on that one. If There's you a are. lot
1: of stuff in there, but I think if I could speak more to the 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 coach that is coming through and the young Daz, if I had my time again, it's still relevant to everyone. But I think I'm really speaking to that person, my my younger self. I'd say get used to the words "it depends," because my life, my early career would have been a lot more kind of less stressful if i could just get my head around that word or those words i should say it depends because um i i really think that if we can start to see the world of strength and conditioning and probably life in general which is very philosophical but there isn't necessarily going to always be uh, a very black and white uh, answer to the question i think it's always going to be a bit of gray and if you can get used to the the you know that kind of mindset it depends you you'll you'll have a a lot less stress in your coaching life
0: <laughs> perfect perfect place to end it um just want to say thanks very much for giving up your evening to chat Daz. i really appreciate it
1: my pleasure I, I know i rambled on at times so it's uh, it's always a test for me to articulate my inner workings of my brain but uh, hopefully if you can get past the rambling you you maybe get a few few things out of that
0: Oh, absolutely. And as I said, I'll uh, put links to uh, the APA framework where people can find you and all the recommended resources we've mentioned in the show notes. Thanks very much once again, Daz.
1: My pleasure. Take Take care.
0: See you, mate. Thank you for listening to episode 12 of the Platform to Perform podcast. If you'd like to reach out to me to provide feedback, you can search for me on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook by searching Todd Davidson P2P Coaching. In episode 13 of the Platform to Perform podcast, I'll be speaking to my powerlifting coach, Charlie Keane. We're really keen for this episode not to be about powerlifting and to be more applicable to the wider context of getting athletes strong for sport. And as such, we'll be discussing the stimulus recovery and adaptation curves of different types of exercises. We'll be discussing coach-athlete relationship. John Kiley's work in terms of how this relationship can actually be key to the physical adaptation and much more. Thank you very much for listening. Catch you again in the next episode.